Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Thank you for joining us to worship and learn more about God as we all pursue Him together as a community. For more podcasts and services about past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendecatur.org. Or come connect with us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning. How is everybody? Good. Hey, I'm Pam Robinson. I'm here to read the scripture reading for you this morning. If you would all please, I'm going to do something a little bit different. We can all stand while we read the scripture this morning. Okay, we're reading from Luke 9, 43b to 45. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. You may be seated. How are you well? Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the leaders here. I'm actually looking for empty seats, counting empty seats. The ushers were telling people coming in towards the end of the worship that we were full. And would you agree we're full? That's right. There's a couple of empty seats. Raise your hand if you have an empty seat next to you. All right, so there's, I don't know, 25, 30 seats in here. We could squeeze in some more people. Would you like to squeeze some more people in here? Yes or no? See, I would answer no to that question. I would have said, I said, absolutely not. I don't want to, I'm an introvert. I don't want to touch anybody when I come to church. If you know anything about renaissances, we like to get cozy up in here. We always squeeze in as many people as we can. I think we're real close to second service, but I keep waiting on the Lord for that. So if we keep getting too full, we'll probably add a second service. That The Lord will win over on that one. Yeah, you excited? All right. So we're back in Luke. I hope you've been following with us. We've been doing a study through the book of Luke. We'll be in Luke for a little bit, probably all of this year, next year, and maybe even to 2026. And we're just trying to take little bite-sized chunks of this passage just to give us some understanding as we walk through. I, my heart would be that once we get done with Luke, if you're still here in a couple years, is that if somebody asked a question about it, at least your mind would immediately flow to this sort of framework or maybe grid work of an understanding on the, the narrative of Luke's gospel. Luke is telling a compelling story about the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he's done so uh, poetically, artistically, and he's really um, weaved, woven, I'm not sure on that, but he's really put together a, a story that is leading us to understand not just the things that the disciples and the people around Jesus were experiencing, but also things that you and I might go, ah, we do that too in our world. And so then the, 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 the word of God doesn't seem like an ancient book any longer. It feels like a friend that walks with me in, in life. Because the Bible is that for us. So, all right, that's it. Ready to start? All right, so in the 16th century, this is way back, uh, a man named William Tyndale embarked on a revolutionary mission. 
moved by a profound belief that the words of God should be accessible to every plowboy and maid in the kingdom, Tyndale vowed to translate the Bible into common English. This was the language of the common people in England. And his vision was clear. He wanted to break the barriers that kept the sacred texts of scripture confined to only the scholarly tongues of Latin and Hebrew and make these words available to the people who could read them in their own language. And Tyndale's journey was just fraught with tension and peril. The prevailing church authority, so this is the Roman Catholic Church in Rome, right? The Pope and the bishops and all of that hierarchy, they were opposed to all of this. They thought that translating into English the, the, the scriptures would be a direct challenge to their power and their orthodoxy, or the way they taught. But Tyndale was undeterred. And so he navigated this maze or labyrinth of political and religious opposition. And his, his life was marked by continuous evasion of arrest. He was always one step ahead. Uh, and about this time, the king of England, which was Henry VIII, he decreed um, heresy to be punishable by death. So he was persuaded by Rome to actually say, if people speak against what we're doing as a church, we're going to call that heresy and we're going to kill you for it. But Tyndale's commitment to his divine calling, it never wavered. It was steadfast. And he crossed the English Channel and he escaped into Germany, where another great reformer you may have heard of, Martin Luther, was creating change for people in his country. And Tyndale continued his task. And take, he would take the, the Greek and the Hebrew texts and he was translating them to English and they were smuggling them back into England and they were spreading around. But in 1536, the inevitable came. Tyndale was betrayed and captured and condemned as a heretic. And they dragged him to the middle of town, into the town square, and tied him to a stake. And standing at this stake, his final plea to God was for enlightenment, but not for himself, but for the king of England. And these are his supposed final words. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And with these words, Tyndale embraced his fate. The rope was tightened around his neck and did its work. And when he breathed his last, they stood with torches and set him ablaze. Tyndale's sacrifice was not in vain. That his translations became the cornerstone of all subsequent English, English Bibles, notably inf uh, influencing the King James Version of the Bible. How many people know about the King James Version? 90% of the King James Bible in the New Testament is Tyndale's work, 90% of it. They didn't change a word from what he had done. And so they finally came around to allowing it to be in English. Anyways, through his unwavering faith and ultimate sacrifice, Tyndale ensured that the word of God would echo in the homes and the hearts of all the English speakers for generations. And so um, this last week, a coworker and I were discussing uh, Tyndale's life, this, a this aspect of his life. Um, and they said this to me, and I share it with you. They said, man, aren't we just so blessed today? And I, I said, well, sure. I, yeah, of course, I completely agree. Yeah, we are blessed today. But, but underneath that statement is another statement. And it's this. It says that our current lack of persecution in the church in America is a blessing from God. That's what they were saying to me. And do you agree with that? I do, 100% agree with that, right? Um, but then I had a thought, actually it was more of a question, and I ask it to you here. 
Do we think that William Tyndale was any less blessed than we are today? <laughs> Go ahead and just move your head one way or the other. I just want to see where we are in the room. You're like, suckers, I ain't doing it. <laughs> Do you think Tyndale was any less blessed by God than we are today? No. Our answer to that question reveals a lot of what we think about Christianity today. If we were to say that Tyndale was in fact less blessed because he faced persecution and eventual martyrdom, then what we're essentially saying is that good things can be blessings and bad things are curses, or at least not from God. And this is a common belief in Christianity. If you walk in Christian circles long enough, you will bump into someone who thinks this way. In fact, statistically, there are people in the room who believe this. I am no longer one of them. The people who think this way um, subscribe to something that, that uh, people call, or uh, have you, anyone heard the prosperity gospel or the prosperity message? Right? I'm not gonna go into that. It's a real soapbox moment for me. I'm not gonna go into that. Just know this. But they believe that God only, the people who ascribe to that belief, they, they believe that God only wants people to prosper or to be blessed and to never face difficulty. I believe this theology or this ideology rather is wrong. And I do not need you to believe me in that. I want to show you some reasons why. Christian blogger Sarah Phillips sums it up this way when she says this, the problem with saying that you're blessed, right, quote unquote blessed, when the offer is accepted for your ideal house or when you meet the person of your dreams is that when it doesn't happen, you just have to assume that you're not so blessed after all. So when bad things are happening to you, you have to believe that God is somehow withholding his blessing from you and that you must be doing something wrong. Because if you were living right, then God would bless you. If you were doing all the right things and all the religious practices right, then God will see that and he will bless you. And my argument here is that it places God into a contractual agreement with you. And this is the teaching of the prosperity gospel. That if you do something, God is then compelled to do something in response. And I do not think I can move God one bit if he doesn't want to move. I think he loves me and I think he'll meet me. And I think when I do pray, I do understand him. Or when I, when I give to the church, I, I, I lose the, the binds that money has on, on my life. And all these things, I, I know God works through my life. But hear me when I say this. There is a distinction from God meeting you because he wants to versus you compelling him to do so because you're so dang awesome. <laughs> Wait, I got a clap. <laughs> is anyone awake on this side? They have one gold star, zero gold stars. <laughs> We're not keeping track. We're keeping track. <laughs> but according to the scripture, right, this is what we need to understand, that the physical and material and financial prosperity, they are no sure marks of God's favor in your life, nor is suffering a mark of his displeasure. It's good. In fact, the Bible teaches that material prosperity is often seen as a snare. If you're taking notes, write down Luke chapter 12. And that suffering is often a mark of blessing. If you're taking notes, write down Matthew chapter 5 and 1 Peter chapter 3. The Bible teaches that the Christian life is not all physical and material prosperity, nor is it all suffering. Rather, I would argue, the Bible teaches that it is sometimes prosperity and sometimes times of suffering in the believer's life. 
And you might remember Paul's words as he sits in the Philippian jail or in a jail somewhere, writing to the Philippians that he has had a lot and not had a lot. And he has somehow learned to be content in the middle. That is who we are. So a false understanding of this truth, of this prosperity message or prosperity gospel, and here's the rub, guys, this is our work for the next 20 minutes or so, is that it can drastically, look at me, drastically affect your relationship with God, if you believe that. And it does so in three primary ways. We'll go through them all here. First, you will miss the work that God is doing in and around your life. You'll miss it. 100% because you think he can't be working in whatever that thing is happening to, to me. That ain't God. That's something else. And you are probably wrong, just so you know. Secondly, a belief in that type of message or gospel pushes people towards works and earning instead of faith, grace, anyone? And lastly, it, um, it creates distrust in God. You just learn to distrust him. And... Um, Dalton, I hear those amens, and that's two gold stars on this side. I don't know what's happening. Is there a captain over here? Preston, you are failing your team, dude. All right, number one, we miss God's work in our life if we believe that idea. One of the compelling truths about Christianity that separate our religion from other world religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, is that we believe God is still active and working in the lives of his followers. Yes and amen. God did not just create a universe like some clock, wind it up and just throw it out into the, the ether or whatever to let it just run on its own. And he doesn't just sit back and enjoy what's happening by not getting involved with it. We believe that God is thinking about us all the time. The Bible says that Jesus actually prays for us. Is that good news? And the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. And all of these truths reveal for us that God wants to work in and around our lives. But when we fall into a false belief about blessings being from God, it can, it can lead us to believe that when we're facing suffering or persecution, that we're not being blessed. And, this is ex and you miss what God is doing. And this is exactly what the disciples were struggling with in, in Luke chapter 9 here. i got to show this to you. Look here again, Luke chapter 9, verse 43b, the second half of verse 43, it says this. While they, all the people, the disciples and the crowd, were, were marveling at everything that Jesus was doing, Jesus then leans into his disciples and says this, let these words sink into your ears. Place these words deep inside of your ears and hear me, that the Son of Man, speaking of himself, is about to be delivered into the hands of men meaning he's going to be marching towards Jerusalem. The chief elders and the priests and religious authorities are going to arrest him and have him flogged, beaten, crucified, and he will be placed in a tomb. Verse 45, but they did not understand this saying, for it was concealed from them, and they would not perceive it. And they are even afraid to ask Jesus about it. We talk a whole lot about that last verse, but we're not going to. Let me move forward. Luke is drawing our attention to the marveling that everyone is doing. That's his words in verse 43. While everyone was marveling at the work that Jesus was doing, Jesus then leans in to that moment, right? Um, and, and tells them in the midst of this glorious revelry, Jesus leans in and says, I'm going to be arrested and killed. 
Jesus reminded his disciples that treachery and betrayal for him lay ahead. He had already told them once, and Jesus is going to tell them again. On three occasions, Jesus tells this to the disciples, and in all three occasions, they did not understand what Jesus was saying. Simply, they would not believe it. That's what Luke is saying. They wouldn't believe it. They couldn't see how the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the anointed one, the one sent from God from heaven to earth could ever suffer and die. Commentator Joel Green says this, they, they cannot comprehend, the fact that they cannot comprehend is rooted in their failure thus far to embrace the fully new view of the world that Jesus, that is the content of Jesus' proclamation. Sorry, everything he's been saying so far. He's got a new perspective on how the world is supposed to work. Simply stated, what he's saying is, how could someone be blessed by God if they suffer arrest and punishment? They don't think Jesus is speaking truth. So at this moment, we'll just recall quickly some of the things that Jesus has been telling them about this kingdom of God that he is establishing through his life. We oftentimes in the church call it the upside down kingdom. It just means it works opposite than their current world. So we look at the world this way. The kingdom of God oftentimes looks upside down. Anybody ever heard upside down kingdom before? Nope. And uh, I wasn't convinced. I wasn't convinced. Uh, so Jesus began preaching this upside down way of thinking about the kingdom um, back in Luke chapter six. We call this the Sermon on the Plain. Brian mentioned earlier the Sermon on the Mount. That's in Matthew's gospel. They're similar type things. I argue different sermons, but, but anyways, in the Sermon on the Plain, as he's teaching disciples, he's, he's teaching different values and expectations that are on um, his disciples. And it's, it's radically different from the conventional wisdom and the so social norms that they're currently living in. It's a sharp contrast to the way God's people are supposed to live and, the, and then the way the world is telling them to live. Would you agree with that? Say yes. Yes. Oftentimes there is a real marked difference in how you live your life than your neighbor who's not a Christian. This is not judgment. It's nothing like that. And, and I ask you this privately by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you don't look different than your neighbor, then what? <laughs> I forget how fun this can be. This is a lot of, this is challenging stuff, that the upside down kingdom looks different. Jesus reminds them in the Sermon on the Plain that blessed are the poor and the suffering. That's not what their world believed. Those who suffer and are marginalized in the kingdom of God are exalted, but not in the world. This contrasts with the worldly kingdom that honor the wealthy and the powerful and the successful. And uh, we have a whole new commodity. It's called followers on our social media. But you could be baroque, like college broke and have like 5,000 followers and think you're somebody. Gross. He says in the Sermon on the Plain that we should have love for our enemies. This marked the early church for the first three centuries or more. Enemy love. Do good to those who hate you. If they persecute you, pray for them. This stuff. Is this resonating with anyone? The golden rule, it says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's a, a universal principle of empathy and a moral reciprocity for the people around you. This is not the way the kingdom works. Judging others. Jesus warns against judging others. We're not doing that when we talk about our neighbors. We love them. 
Jesus teaches humility and self-awareness. That's what we want. Say amen. I want to be aware. I want to be aware of what's happening in my life. Yes and amen. And then and he finishes up the Sermon on the Plain speaking about this foundation. He says, there's a man who builds a house on sand. And when the waves come, it destroys it. And there's a guy who's built it on a rock. And he just says that those people who hear these words, this saying of the Sermon on the Plain and do them is like the one building on the rock. This is an established relationship with God. This is what it looks like. But these are backwards ideals to the world. And we want to be people that live in the upside down kingdom. So in essence, the upside down kingdom principles of Jesus followers are asked to embody a countercultural way of life and reflects the values of God characterized by love and justice and mercy and humility, say amen, radically different than the values that are celebrated by the world. And the disciples, they had not fully embraced these ideals yet. We don't hold this against them. I'm just telling you, they're new to them. Like maybe some of you in the room, like you're learning this way of God, this way of Christ following, and it's like, oh, but I used to this, but now I think I'm supposed to this. I get all that tense, and, and the disciples are also going through the same thing. And yet they still hoped that Jesus would come and help them remove the, 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 uh, the Roman governor, right? They still want to topple the Roman government and reestablish themselves at an auto, as an autonomous nation. But God had another plan and wait for it. And they missed it. Missed it. They couldn't believe what Jesus was saying. Jesus said, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. What is going to happen to him in Jerusalem is not an accident. Like Jesus doesn't like get there and go, oh no, they're going to arrest me. He knows from God the Father and sets his face towards Jerusalem and marches with disciples in tow to the very thing that he knows he's about to endure. This was not an accident. This was an intentional. He was delivered over. Judas was one of the 12 disciples. And he's going to soon strike a deal with the religious elders to deliver Jesus over for a handful of silver coins. Jesus' own people, the Jews, will still deliver him over to Pilate, the Roman governor, governor rather, who needs to approve his death sentence. And yes, each of these people and groups of people are culpable in the death of Jesus, but ultimately it was God, the Father, who delivered Jesus over to be crucified. And in his crucifixion, Jesus willingly follows God the Father, gives his life as a, as a ransom for the sinners of the world that they might, they might all be forgiven, that some of us in the room, yes. And in his resurrection, Jesus will prove that God the Father accepts his sacrifice on the cross and gives an example of what eternal life can look like and is to be expected by those of us who have faith. But the disciples missed it. It says they still didn't believe this until after they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. Do you see how if you believe that only blessings and good things are, only good things are blessings from God and that you will miss it when suffering and persecution comes? God is moving in the midst of all those things too. And if you only think this way, you will miss all the 50% more of what God is doing in your life. Yes? Are you at all picking up what I'm putting down? The disciples were his closest friends. They didn't believe him. It just shows that oftentimes people fail us. 
Phil Ware writes that we are flawed human beings who often fail each other. And we must not let failure, even total failure like this from the disciples, destroy our faith in God. I know people, you know people who don't go to church anymore because of church hurt, right? Because someone in the church hurt them. And I'm not to minimize church hurt, not to minimize any of those things. Um, But they don't stop going to, to Walmart and people offend me there daily. (laughs) <laughs> they, become, they become just little excuses that we use to stay away from the thing that the Lord's doing. That was extra. I don't know why I wrote that. It feels right. It might be for some of you in the room. It might be for only me. I don't know. We'll see. Ready? Number two. We're cooking with gas now. Number two. If you believe in a prosperity gospel or this type of message, then you will begin to lean on works right? Your actions, your activities, more so than faith. Ephesians chapter 2, famous passage, verses 8 and 9 says this, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing. It's in fact a gift from God. And it's not a result of your works. And and I love what he says, so that no one can boast about it. The, The apostle Paul just correctly states that our salvation is by grace through faith and not through works. If it was the other way around, works instead of faith, he said we would just brag about it. We'd say how much better I am than you. And there's also another more nuanced reason why we must not be people who rely on our disciplined living to get blessings from God. is because a central tenet of our faith is that we can have a relationship with God based on Jesus' work for us. Let me back up. A central tenet of our faith is that we can have a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus. And if you try to build it through your works, you've just kicked Jesus to the curb. You don't need him anymore. He's an unnecessary addition, a a name we add on to the end of our prayers before we eat biscuits and gravy and things. Jesus is unnecessary. But it is the relationship with God through his son Jesus. That is the thing that fundamentally changes and transforms our lives. Do you agree? Do you agree? I need you, to, I need you to hear me. It is the relationship that God is reestablishing through the work of his son. When, when it was all separated and broken in Genesis chapter three, when the serpent came in, betrayed them and led them astray and they chose a different path, God restores them, redeems them through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, because the relationship with God is that which changes lives, not works, not stuff. And when you lean on stuff to be the root of your faith or your relationship with God, you've dismissed Jesus. He is not available to you. And I'm telling you, that faith is bankrupt to help you. Many of us in the room have traveled that road many times before. Try harder, do more. Try harder, do more. All right. Anything that we do, anything that we do on our own is limited. 
It's limited. We don't have the all-knowing omniscience of God leading our decisions. We're limited in understanding. We can misperceive the totality of the situation and thus make many mistakes in our lives. Say amen. We don't have the all-powerful, all-powerful omnipotence that God has, whose strengths, whose strength rather holds together the creation of everything. We're leaving him outside the room while we try to suffer through it. And he's like, let me in. I got this. And what he begins, he can finish. Yes, he is 100% effective in everything that he wants to do. And can you say the same about your life? I love saying this all the time at Renaissance, but nobody in this room has lied to you more than you. <laughs> I'm going to change this year. <laughs> how's, that, how's that working for you? All right, the relationship with God through Christ Jesus is what fundamentally transforms his people. It leads us to genuine works, a natural expression of our faith, rather than works being performed as a means to secure something from him. Yes? Not at me, I'll move on. I'm ready to go. I got all, all day. Uh, point three, distrust in God. Circumstances in our life change. It is part of our lived experience. It's part of the human condition. The weather around us might be the greatest reminder of this truth. Last Friday, I had to cancel a walk, a lunch walk with my buddy because it was snowing. And, last, and yes, Friday we walked and we didn't even take jackets. So the weather could just be a constant reminder to us that our world changes always. One day it's sunny and we're soaking up vitamin D, right? And the next day it's this wind is cutting through our clothes and it's so freaking cold. It's Illinois weather. But our lives change a lot the same way. Drastic, seemingly unexplained changes happen to us all of the time. And if we're too focused on the temporary concerns on the, the short-term situation, then we can lose an eternal perspective. And we can lose a, a long-term view that God is showing us. Uh, real quick story. In a, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, there's a story of a king named David. He's, he's at one point fleeing for his life because one of his own sons, Absalom, is coming to kill him. And there's a whole backstory to why that thing is happening. But just know this, D David, the king of Israel, leaves the capital city of Jerusalem and he hides out into the wilderness while an army of his son, the enemy, searches for him night and day. David's situation is dire, to say the least, yes? This is more than him having a bad day getting overlooked for the promotion. This is if they find him, he will not see one more sunset. His life has come to an end. But in Psalm 3, we have the recorded words of David in the middle of this life situation. And he says this in Psalm chapter 3, starting in verse 1, as he prays, O Lord, how many are my foes or enemies? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. They're saying, you can't get out of this, bro. You are stuck. But verse three, it says this, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and you are the lifter of my head. There are going to be times when we need God to lift our heads and point our gaze at a horizon off in the distance where our current situation is no longer visible. We too often shuffle through life with our heads down, only paying attention to the world immediately in front of us. This we would call fearful living. 
We think we can duck through life and we can dodge all of the dangerous and deadly bullets whizzing by. But that ain't living. That's not living. That is surviving. And God can show us a way to live through Jesus. So when we face difficult life situations, we can easily say that we're not being blessed by God. I think it's wrong. (laughs) I don't think persecution, suffering, challenges, I don't think any of those things negate the fact that we are blessed by God. In fact, Charles Spurgeon once said this, anything is a blessing if it puts you on your knees to pray. So whatever situation you're going through right now, if it makes you pray, praise the Lord. (laughs) Praise God for it. I'll close with this. A few more things. There are many promises in the Bible. Do a quick Google search and you'll find compilations of all the best promises of God. You can put them on t-shirts or bumper stickers or coffee mugs or whatever gross Hobby Lobby thing you want to put it on. <laughs> promises about answering prayer, promises about God's provision, promises of, being, of him being with us, about his goodness. And there's even promises about uh, Jesus. And Jesus makes some promises. But there's, ne- there's I, I looked this up, but there's one promise that never seems to appear in these compilation lists. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus saying, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace because in this world you will have what? Tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. That's a, that's a promise of God. Why don't we put that on a coffee mug? Right? The word translated in the ESV as tribulation in other English translations is trouble, persecution, trials, suffering, distress. Need I go on? He says, you will face these things. That particular promise is always left out. Because why? Because we want to be people who avoid pain and avoid discomfort. But we would do well to remember what James says in James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, tribulations of all kinds. Why? Because you know that it will test your faith And it will produce a steadfastness in you. And when that steadfastness has its full effect, you'll be made perfect and complete, lacking what? Nothing. And the road to perfection oftentimes is through the way of suffering. But if you believe that you're suffering because you're not doing something right, if you believe that prosperity, um, permission to speak freely, crap, garbage, that prosperity heresy, if you, if you buy into that, you'll miss all the stuff that God is doing. You'll miss it because you're going to be blaming it on yourself or the devil or someone else. And the whole time the Lord's going, hello? I thought I'd grow you up a little bit. Thought you might graduate kindergarten this year. We're going to put you on the big bus and you can go with your older siblings. You can take a lunch and everything. It's going to be a blast. They get recess. It's the coolest thing. But so many of us want to stay. God wants us to be complete, lacking nothing. You agree? Would you say, God wants me complete? God wants me complete. God wants me complete. I believe you. I'm done, almost. Um, So how do we do this? I need a moment, a moment. And you can leave in a minute, a moment. How can we do this? 
First, we have to seek God in things that are unexpected to us. There's during moments of joy and victory, we can rejoice with God and, and through moments of trials and adversities. But we have to see these challenging times as something that, that God is probably doing in unexpected ways in our lives. Number two, we need to prioritize our faith more than our works. I won't say any more there. Okay? Prioritize your faith more than your works. Okay? God is doing something in his relationship to himself through Jesus by faith that, that no amount of religious activity could ever um, create in your life. Okay? Rely on faith. Okay? Works come, and I, we appreciate works. We use works all the time to make the church run on Sundays. Thank you for working for the church. I'll get all that. So, Number three, we trust in God's sovereignty. We no longer distrust him. We believe that he's doing something wholeheartedly for our benefit. In his overarching plan for our lives, God is doing something. And when we are faced with God's uncertainties, when we don't know what's happening, when the world is moving beneath our feet, God is not. He is not. He is settled, sure, unmoving, unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That we put our hat upon and live there. And so we might face tumultuous times, probably unlike King David. We're running for our lives. So you never know. But God is in the midst of our turmoil. And so we reflect on this passage here in Luke 9. And we look at the enduring legacy of William Tyndale and the principles that we see in Scripture, David's thing, the whole Psalms, all the stuff. And we know this, that there is a steadfastness in our faith that can acknowledge God's presence in every aspect of our lives, both in prosperity and adversity. Amen? All right. Let, I'm skipping now. Let us pray together, shall we? Are we friends still? Just I want to know. Like, I don't care. I just want to know. <laughs> I care a lot. I love you guys. I, I, want, I want this thing to work for you. I do. I want, I want you guys to get this. I want me to get this. <laughs> Holy cow. You, you ever, have you ever heard of imposter syndrome? Where you feel like at some point at work, they're going to figure out that he really don't know what he's doing? You should try preaching. There's, a, um, there's an idea that there's just a learned, a learned mentality that somehow the guy who knows more should say more. And I just disagree with that. I think the person who's lived a good, long, and faithful life towards the direction of God is the one who should say more. For years, I've been leaning on my own intellectual ability, less my lifestyle. And for that, I apologize. But I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to fake it. It doesn't behoove me to do it. It doesn't help you in any way. It just causes anxiousness and tension. Can you imagine walking up onto this platform with a mic turned on in your hand and you hear the enemy of the world, the enemy, the devil say to you, Jeff, they won't listen to you because you do not believe what you're about to say. The same is true for you in the room. Why would your coworkers listen to you about faith and your journey when, when you're not 
living a faith life in front of them. You, you recite scriptures, God bless you. And you do all the things that you think God is after, but what he wants more is just a trusted, faith-filled life moving with him. We don't want to be disciples who miss it. All right, I'm done. All right. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for the grace to see your hand at work in all the things of our life. We need a faith, God, to be anchored not in our works, but in Christ's redemptive sacrifice. His work, his blood, his passion for us. And we trust in, in you, God, to keep us unshaken no matter the trials that we may face. May our lives, God, in this church, collectively embody the richness and the depth of our relationship with you. Challenge us, God, with one another, and let us be immensely rewarded by your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to support you and have you be a part of our community. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. There you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, and even contribute to the growth of the church through online giving. Or you can come see us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. We can't wait to see you.